Hello and welcome to this episode of Planning Ahead, the podcast series brought to you by Warwick Plan. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Jane Trace, LGBTQ plus historian and author. Jane was a teacher and head teacher for over 35 years before she took a new path, returning to education, this time as a student again, taking a course in gender studies before going on to complete her PhD in the same field in 2014. Jane has published several successful books exploring the history of older lesbian women, as well as a series of period novels as part of the writing duo Jay Taverner. I'm thrilled that Jane has taken the time to come and discuss today's topic of LGBTQ plus history and storytelling, assessing the evolution of pride and the community throughout the years. Jane, thank you for joining us. Um, I thought today we could start by perhaps elaborating on your journey to sort of where you are now and what it was that kind of led you to retire from teaching that you um, did for sort of 30 plus years and kind of go back to, you know, the other side of education and, and becoming sort of a student again. Well, the two things are separate in a way because, I mean, I, I retired just because I got to the end. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd served my time, as it were, um, and I retired and I did a lot of different things after I retired, but about four or five years in, I found myself in a situation where I suppose I was just mentally underemployed, really. Uh, and I thought, what would I like to do? And I decided I would go back to learning. Um, I, I mean, I love learning. I love to be in a place where learning is taking place as well. Uh, but it was quite scary because it was by then <clears throat> something like 50 years since I'd taken my first degree. And the world had changed very, very much, particularly in universities. So I signed up. I a lot of thought about what to do, but not a lot of choice about where to do it because I was living in a very rural spot on the Welsh border. Uh, so it was either Warwick or Birmingham. And... Um, I went to Birmingham and it turned out to be a wonderful thing. They were doing a, a one-year MA course, well, it was an MPhil actually, um, in gender studies, uh, which turned out to be a most, a most excellent course for somebody going back to studying after a very long time because it was modular and it covered all sorts of different subjects and topics. Uh, I mean, I'd only been there about six months when I was completely addicted and knew that I was going to go on and, and uh, do, do a doctorate afterwards. I just couldn't leave it alone. One of the best things I ever did. Never too late. So you, you did your, your PhD in the same subject, but um, I'm just curious as to what it was that kind of attracted you to, you know, studying gender in the first place and kind of what was that sort of moment, those things that really kind of made you realise this was something that you wanted to kind of invest your time into long term? Well, it was partly... Yes, I mean, it was partly a positive choice, but also to some extent, it was accidental almost. I was very keen not to study anything that I'd studied before. So that ruled out English, obviously, which was my main subject and education. And I, I'm not trained in history, but I've done a lot of history, as we'll probably come to later on. And I didn't like the look of traditional history courses anyway. Um, and I didn't want to do anything to do with drama or, well, anything that I ever had anything else to do with. And so I looked and I thought to myself, well, I was at the time, I was very interested in a fairly theoretical way in gender because, well, I've been around the lesbian community and the queer community all my life. Uh, and it seems to me that gender is a very important and interesting topic and always has been, even since I was young, you know, back in the old butch femme days, that's all about gender. So I thought, well, oh, people are actually writing and talking about this stuff now. So maybe I could learn about it academically as well and see what people are saying. And there was, as I say, this wonderful course available um, was just right. Yeah. So how would you say that kind of this new knowledge and, and learning that you kind of developed from this um, kind of shaped your perspective as a member of kind of the lesbian and sort of wider LGBTQ plus community? Well, in terms of the masters that I did uh, at that point, I, I think it pushed me in the direction that I'm going now, albeit in a slightly negative way, because 
as I said to you, it was a very good course. It was modular because it had been put together by a bunch of feisty women at Birmingham, all from different subject areas, because there is no gender studies department at Birmingham. These, these women came from sociology and politics and languages and art history, all kinds of parts of the university. And they had put together this, this gender studies degree. So we did all kinds of interesting things. We, we studied uh, a lot of feminist theory and feminist history. That was interesting. Um, because, as you know, the, the radical feminists of the 70s are very interested in gender. We read a lot of Judith Butler with some difficulty. Um, we learned about masculinities and we learned about uh, representation in art. But we hardly ever saw any lesbians. We saw a lot of gay men and a lot of various other things. And I was looking for these lesbians and I wasn't finding them. And I wasn't finding very many women at all to be honest and in particular I wasn't finding any old ones I was very aware of of the position of old queer people because I am one and because I was several generations older than all my fellow students I think Birmingham found me quite hard to cope with actually in some ways but I had a wonderful supervisor fortunately um, so I started to think to myself where are these old dykes you know where are these old queer women and uh it, I said to you that it was an MPhil rather than an MA, and all that meant was that you had to write a little dissertation at the end of it. Absolutely terrifying. I, I, I just thought, I can't do this. But then I got it into my head that I would write about this lack, this absence, that I would write about the fact that nobody ever made representations or mentions of old queer women. And that was what I did. And, of course, having proved that we were invisible... I then had to go on and do a PhD to make us visible, and that was what set me off on my course, really. Um, I, I, I moved from one end of the country to the other at that point, which is one of the reasons I ended up at Sussex, but also because Sussex, I mean, there was nowhere to do a PhD, a queer PhD at Birmingham. It is a very straight university. Um, and so Sussex is quite the opposite. Sussex is a very queer place. So I was very happily situated there, and I was there for four years. And I just studied old women who identified as lesbian and bisexual. Yeah, fantastic. So what would you kind of say from, from doing that and exploring a subject area that you yourself say was very, you know, unpublicised? Um, what, what were kind of the, the big findings that you made? Stuff that you found really interesting that perhaps kind of hadn't ever really crossed your mind before? Um, I don't think there was a great deal that hadn't crossed my mind before, but it definitely brought into clear focus quite a lot of themes. I think one of the things that other people found surprising, but didn't surprise me, was the extent to which these women were, are still in the closet. Uh, I think 10 years on, because it was 10 years ago that I did most of that work, I think 10 years on, um, it's been wonderful to see even some of the oldest and the most secretive come creeping out and get married and, and so on. But there are still a lot of, a lot of old, well, men and women who, who are still in the closet mm. um, and who don't feel able to be open in the world. And when I said this to younger people, they were incredulous and said but everybody's out now it's fine it's fine why ever would they not be and so one of the things I found myself explaining was the effect of a long life experience of fear and discrimination and all the things that went with those lives um, I, I discovered patterns in the lives of these women I discovered or either I clarified for myself some of the differences between the history of queer men and women in the 20th century. Because all the women that I interviewed had been born before 1950, so they were growing up in the middle and the, and the last part of the 20th century. And, of course, we know about queer men's history in that time, and it's, it, you know, it's both terrible and wonderful. But it was slightly differently inflected for women and and I hoped I was bringing that out um 
is this a moment to say, if you want to know more about what I found out, read the book? Because... <laughs> It'd be a perfect time for a plug day. <laughs> well, you know, when you do a PhD, everybody goes around saying to each other, are you going to publish? And I, I was quite entertained by this idea because clearly at 69 or whatever I was at the time, I wasn't going to, um, I wasn't going to be looking for an academic career. But you get caught up in this thing. So I did publish a book, uh, but it was an academic book and it was very largely my thesis worked over. And then I thought that's not what I really want to do because I had collected as part of my research all these wonderful life stories. I mean, just wonderful stories, which people gave me so generously to get my research on, on the road. And I thought, well, I need to give something back. And also, you know perfectly well, Zach, when, when you write academic uh, pieces, you, you, you never quote things at huge length. You, you use little gobbits of things to illustrate your points that you want to make. But these stories had shape and they had a beginning, a middle and an end. And they were great stories. And so what I did in the end was to collect some of them about 20, I think it was in the end, and published them as a, as a storybook. Um, and that's how Now You See Me came about. I was very surprised because, as I say, I thought of it very largely as a, a gift back to the community that had given me the stories, saying, look, here are your stories, and I have told them, and I have made them available. But actually, it just took off. It must have hit a moment. I, I don't know. It's still flying off the shelves four years later. Um, and it's just it's just been the most wonderful thing. And it's changed the lives of some of the women in it. That's the best thing. Because uh, we used to do lots of readings. I used to take some of the, the women whose stories are in the book, used to come with me, and we used to do these, these readings from, from their lives. And... It actually brought some of them out of the closet and, and just moved them on in extraordinary ways. So that was lovely. Yeah, that's fabulous. Um, I also, now that we're on the subject, want to talk about your um, fictional work that you've done um, oh. as part of the uh, writing duo Jay Tavener. Um, kind of, could you just tell us more about, you know, how that partnership came to be, what inspired you, you know, to kind of delve down that sort of avenue of, you know, queer fictional writing? Well, again, we're going back in time, and I suppose into the 90s, 1990s, I was in a long-term lesbian relationship, and we were both, well, we were both English students originally. We were both interested in history. We were interested in literature. That was our, our lives. We were both in education, and we both read a lot. And we were both aware that we never read books about people like ourselves. Now, there are, there were, when we were young, there was some fairly grim um, lesbian pulp around, but not anything very much else except the well of loneliness. Ah! Um, and around this time, I mean, there was certainly no historical fiction with people like us in it. Uh, it was it was before uh, Sarah Waters. It was you know, it was, so we decided we'd just write one. We'd just write a historical story, uh, sort of girl meets girl romance, and we did, and we published it. And then we wrote a sequ sort of sequel to it, and we published that. And then we wrote a third one, and we've sort of got into the early years of this century now, into the noughties. And then we broke up. Um, and the some, you know, you'll recognize this story. It's it's what lesbians do, well, what they used to do. We didn't talk to each other for about 10 years, and then we made friends again, because that's what we do. And uh, when we were friends again and talking to each other again, which was not awfully long ago, we uh, said to each other, Do you think we could still do it? Do you think we could still write? those stories because it used to be surprising to people that two people could write as one voice and I think we did it because we knew each other very well you know um, that was how it came about we weren't sure whether it would still be there the ability to do that so we set out to finish a book we'd started when we were still together long ago and we did finish it and we published it last year 
and uh, it was seemed to us the best one we'd done. But our publisher said, well, actually, you know, the years have gone by and most of the people who used to read your novels are probably dead. And there's a whole generation of new people who have never read them. So I think we'll just republish the whole lot because they are a series. Um, and that, that, look, that's how it came about. So now we've got a new novel after a great gap of time, uh, which is very enjoyable. And we've had some wonderful launch events and, uh, uh, and readings and so on. And it was hard in lockdown. It's very difficult to launch a book during COVID, but uh, now that people are getting back to real life, we're, we're getting more opportunity to get out and about and do the readings and talk to people as well. So Yeah, that's great. It, it's, it's very interesting because obviously now a lot of the platforms you use to kind of share these queer stories are, you know, TV shows and movies and stuff like that. But what, do you, what would you say is, you know, the value, the reason why you know, literature, especially like the queer literature that you've written, that you've taken inspiration from, is important even now? Well, I think there's a lot of overlap between uh, literature, fact, fiction, drama, documentary, and so on. And I think Gentleman Jack's a good example, isn't it? And that starts with a piece of real history um, and ends up as a television fiction. Um, and I think... Uh, stories take different forms I and mean, we've got yes we've published our we publish our stories as as books in the hand uh but they're also on kindle so people can read them on screen i i, I think reading interestingly continues doesn't it people do consume a lot of their fiction um in the form of films television etc etc online but that private act of actually reading, that getting with a story on your own, even whether you're reading it on a screen or on a page, it doesn't seem to me to matter a great deal. It's not gone away. We thought it might, didn't we? 10, 20 years ago yeah. when things digital came along. But people seem to like to have a book and read it and go back and read it again. Um, so, yeah, I think... I think the novel, in some form or another, is is fairly safe, actually. Yeah, I, th I think there's something, you know, very beautiful about, you know, something where you can read it and there's enough left to be desired to kind of put yourself in the story or, you know, have your yes. own interpretation from it. I think that's the thing that books will always have over yes. other, other media is the fact that, you know, a, a television show or something visual will always spell out for you there's not a, a lot there left to your own imagination. I think that's the, the beauty. Yes, I think I, I'm sure that's right. And there's all that um, thing around the, the, the film of the book or the television show of the book. And if you've read the book, then it might chime with the way you saw the characters or thought it was, all, or it might not. Um, yeah, because you bring a lot of your own imagination to the experience of reading a story. And you, you know, you, you actually see the characters in your head um, in your own way. Yeah. 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 And, and just kind of other sort of period pieces that spring to mind. I mean, a lot of them are these kind of digital media things. So, you know, things yeah. like Nabby, things like uh, Bridgerton on Netflix recently. Yes. Yes. They all have these little, you know, snippets of canonic um, queerness and queer characters, but never really at the front and centre of any stories. So, why do you think that that needs to change and kind of recognising that queer people have always existed, that they're not just kind of, you know, side characters for a, for a cute little plot moment or something like that? Why do you think that, you know, your work that you've done is so important in terms of putting queer people, especially queer women, at the front and centre? Well, we're all at the front and centre of our own lives, aren't we? Um, and I think, oh, I do think, representation is terribly important um, and that's not just about queer people that's about people of color about anyone who who isn't a cis white male basically um, queer people in my generation spent an awful lot of time querying what they wrote or watched you know you thought yourself into uh, an overtly heterosexual romance film or novel or whatever 
uh, and in your head you were one of the characters. But much better to have your own. And one of the, one of the things that's really struck me with regard to this is the enormous impact that the television, the two series of Gentleman Jack, have had. Um, I mean, it's not done a huge amount for me because I've, you know, I've got other places to go maybe. But I mean, that documentary, was it last week on how That's Gentleman kind of Jack changed my life? Oh, go figure. I mean, really, really, really important for mm. people to find that representation of people like themselves on screen. Yeah. Um, how, how do you think that, you know, either your own experiences or some of these older uh, lesbian women that you you've spoken to throughout your academic work and stuff, how do you think their lives and their career trajectories would have changed if they had that representation, if they had that comfort of knowing that there are other people out there like them? Well, it's very hard to estimate how much damage being in the closet did to people, but it did. Um, it restricted your life and your relationships. And in extreme cases, it, it did res restrict what you could do with your life. I mean, I've got several examples in my research of women who just knew they had to wear trousers. Oh, that's a rather obvious example, but it meant that they couldn't have the kind of jobs that they might otherwise have been able to do because dress codes in the 20th century were extraordinarily strong and women didn't wear trousers uh, until about 1960. So, but not just that. I think the damage that is done to people by constantly living in fear and hiding, by living a lie, if you like. Uh, so... Lives would have been different in lots of different ways, mm. uh, not least in the ability to actually not only acknowledge but legitimise your relationships. Um, but none of these things were available to the people that I, I interviewed. And are, are there things you, you want to see more of? I mean, obviously, you know, you've kind of taken matters into your own hands in a sense where you've created, you know, a genre of fiction that you felt there was a lack of. But are there things, you know, are there specific parts of queer lives that you you want to see more representation of things that you still feel kind of we're, we're lacking behind because I think a lot of the current representation is quite um homogenous and one-dimensional well I, I think that's is. the point that's the point you've made it that we don't at any point want either our history or our fictional history or our you know or our stories to become one only uh and I I thought a lot about this uh, back in 2017, when we were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the partial decriminalisation of male gay sex in 67 Act. Because I thought, well, actually, that year, 2017, in History Month, I went to a lot of events. And for the first time, I started to see queer history presented by straight people. And I thought, well, this is wonderful because our history has crossed into the mainstream. But at the same time, I also thought what will happen to us is what's happened to every other part of history. It will become a single narrative. And that narrative will be a story of sort of 50 years of improvement of, um, you know, from uh, shame to pride or that whole narrative of the increasing um, protection and liberation that comes from legalization and so on and it will be very largely and it will have the AIDS story in it in the 80s it will be a male story it's bound to be because that's how history is always um, and what we will lose is the different people the people who who are under that LGBTQ plus 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 umbrella but are not the character you normally see and so I think I wouldn't say there's a particular story that needs still to be told. I would urge all the variety of stories. to that's, I mean, I think my contribution, um, the women's voices that I amplify, because I've moved on, as you probably know, from talking about very old queer women to working with uh, more recently with um, lesbian and bisexual asylum seekers. But anyone who's marginalised within the LGBTQ community 
um, still needs to have their stories told because I think what we need to do is somehow to go on fighting both for the diversity and also the unity of our community. Um, we, we can be different. We can even have different opinions about things, but yeah. we do still, you know, and we're, not all those voices need to be heard. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I wonder whether we could talk a little bit more about that sort of recent work and why, you know, obviously there, there are very obvious, straightforward reasons why the voices of, you know, asylum seekers and those, you know, lacking mm. that sort of underappreciated privilege that we enjoy yeah. being able to just sit here and have this discussion. Um, and, you know, what was it that kind of made you realise this is something that I want to do and I want to be able to be part of the solution to these problems that, you know... Well, it was, it was just, it just happened. Yeah. It's like so many things that happened in my recent life. It just, one thing leads to another. Um, I had just had an email out of the blue one day from a woman who said, you don't know me, but my partner's read your work or something like that. I get lots of emails like that saying, uh, I live in uh, Todmorden, but I work as a volunteer with a group in Manchester which supports women who are seeking asylum on the grounds of their sexual orientation. Um, oh, you know, I don't think I'd ever thought about this before, to be honest. Uh, and she said, the reason I'm writing to you is that we've got one Asylum seeker at the moment, she's had her case rejected by the Home Office more than once. She's nearly what they call appeals exhausted, appeals rights exhausted. Um, and we don't know how to help her because she's very unusual among our group of refugee women because she's in her 70s. And she told me a little bit about this woman who's from Uganda and who the Home Office clearly just could not see as a lesbian because she'd been married twice, she'd got children, she'd got grandchildren, she hadn't had her same-sex relationship until she was in her middle life, and even when she did that, she hadn't lived with the woman, and the Home Office was going, this isn't a lesbian, how can this be a lesbian? Uh, no, we don't believe you, go back to Uganda where incidentally, in the meantime, her lesbian partner had actually been murdered. So I immediately recognised this as a very common story because the other 70-year-old um, queer women that I had interviewed very often had such stories. They had been heterosexually married. They had got children. They had become lesbians in middle life. You know, it was, it's a very common narrative. And so I just sat there. And, and when I realised as well, that this woman was exactly the same age as I was. I just had this sort of moment, really. As you say, you, you think you acknowledge your own privilege until you're really have your nose up against it. And I thought, here is this woman born in the same year as I was, and she's about to be deported to a country that will kill her. And here I sit, you know, as you say, with all my privilege. So then I thought... And until now, I've done all this research entirely for fun, entirely for my own satisfaction. I've loved every minute of it. It hadn't ever occurred to me that it could be useful to someone else in that way. So that was the turning point, really. And I did write a lot of letters and I did do everything I could. And it took another two years before she was safe. And we really almost got to the lying down in front of the plane bit we didn't quite get there but we did get as far you know right down the line to the last court hearing um and we did get her her stay and she is now safe and she does now uh live here and she's not afraid anymore but in those years in intervening years i got to know a lot of the other women in the group um and i've got to know the you know the sort of things that not just asylum seekers but in this case women asylum seekers you know and there are other things that happen to them um, I just looked at them all one day and I thought, this is the next book. Let's do, let's do a life stories book with you and let's sell it to raise money for the work of the group. And that was what we did. It was a bit of a challenge because we did it all in lockdown, um, except the interview. I just, just managed the interviews. I think it was mid-March 2020. Um, 
and, and then the gates clanged shut and we did everything else, uh, you know, just online. And we published it last year on International Women's Day. So there, that was good. That was good. That was how it all happened anyway. And yes, as you say, it takes something to bring you up against uh, what enormous privilege we've all got, actually. You know, because we concentrated a lot on going, oh, we're queer, so we're very di discriminated against. And yes, we've had hard times, but they're nothing like the hard times that some of these women have had that have driven them from their countries and their families and, you know, threatened their lives. I don't think that happened to most of us. Yeah, it certainly gives you perspective, doesn't it? Yeah, perspective. That's it. Yeah. And, you know, what would you say kind of as, as a sort of general message? Like, obviously, a lot of people will, you know, either hear about stories or, you know, some people will be thrust into a situation like yourself where you're then, you know, an active participant in these stories. Yes. And kind of feeling that sense of, well, what can I do to help? Like, obviously, you've been able to use your craft and of your writing yeah. and stuff like that in order yeah. to help. But... Why do you think it's important that, you know, as a community, we do stand up for these rather than just kind of being like, well, what can I do? Not my problem. Why do you think it's important that we kind of have that sense of sticking together and, and helping where and how we can? Because no one else can do it, I think. Uh, there are lots of wonderful people all around the country trying to help in spite of the attitudes our current government's taking, make it very difficult, um, trying to help people who are displaced and hopeless and fleeing from violence and so on. Um, and we've seen lots of examples of that recently. I mean, my visit, my own village has adopted a Ukrainian family and so on. But the very small minority of those um, refugees who are fleeing because they're queer, because they come from countries that will pretty much kill them um, if they're discovered or have been discovered and threatened in that way. Nobody but us can explain to the Home Office, can stand up and say, this is why we believe their story. It's our story. Um, and so I think that's, that's, the, that's why we, what we can do. It, it's a small proportion of the people seeking asylum but they are desperate because the home office is very very hostile to them and look you arrive here traumatized penniless possibly not speaking english um and you've been told that this is a country where it's all right to be queer where it'll be all right it's the promised land and then the home office get hold of you and say okay prove you're queer then Prove you're gay. And in the Home Office's mind, if I've got a mind, somewhere is a kind of westernised male, white, um, urban, I think, picture of what it is to be gay. So they say, tell us about the gay clubs you go to. Well, if you're a penniless refugee who can't speak English and you don't happen to live in Manchester or, or London, you're not be going to any gay clubs. And anyway, you've spent your entire life telling, not telling people that you're gay. It's very difficult and queer asylum seekers need queer, need queer allies, I suppose what I'm saying. So, yeah, on that on that subject, I think it'd be interesting to kind of talk about the history and the terminology used within the community and especially at the word itself, lesbian. Like I know a lot of people that identify that way, but there's still a lot behind that word. And, you know, a lot of them don't really like using it and things like that. So why why do you think that that's still something that you know, lesbians themselves struggle with, and obviously that's going to reflect, as we've discussed, uh, with, you know, the wider community in, in terms of its legal and political use and understanding as well. I'm, I've got a lot to say about words. I'll try, I'll try and be clear. I, I get very heated about this. We have enough to do, honestly, without constantly dividing ourselves and arguing about words. Words change all the time, historically. Language is dynamic. Ordinary words in English have changed their meanings over hundreds of years. And I do think it's sad that we get quite as upset as we do about certain language and certain words at certain times. Um, 
I had a very interesting conversation quite recently with a young woman who was still at school. She was in sixth form of six um, about terminology. And she said that she had uh, a number of um, same sex attracted female friends, let's say. Uh, she'd in fact done a, a piece of sociological research in her own school and she'd identified a large number uh, and asked them how they identified and none of them at all identified themselves with the word lesbian, though that is what I suppose somebody like me would describe them as. Uh, what fascinated me also was the words that they did use to describe themselves because what they'd actually done was to reach even further back and adopted uh, what I think of as a very 70s term and called themselves um, woman-loving women and sapphic and words like that. Well, that's fine. That's lovely. They're all perfectly good words. They're lovely. Um, they all describe pretty much the same thing. Uh, and I, I mean, I'm, I understand why currently the word lesbian is not a word that young women want to associate with. I could also say to you that back in the 1970s, I would say, it was a word, it's a word that a lot of my generation wouldn't use either. Uh, women, certainly women older than me would not use that word about themselves. They would describe themselves as gay women. And I hear that's come back again, uh, sort of 50 or 60 years later. So it's all flexible. And it, the words themselves, you know, words don't have power unless you give them power. So I know what's wrong with the word lesbian at the moment. It conjures for people aspects of 70s and 80s feminism of the women's movement, which are now not attractive uh, to the younger generation. And I, I, I agree, they're not. Um, but I think what you need to remember is that there's somebody somewhere, your mum's age or your granny's age, who fought to reclaim that word and to own it, and who feels quite rejected by the fact that you feel like that about it. So we, all need, we just need to be a bit kind to each other about words, I think. Um, the word queer is an interesting one. You know, my granddad uh, used to use the word queer to indicate that he wasn't very well. He used to say, I feel a little queer. But he also knew that saying that you felt a little queer was a dirty joke. So he knew that it had another meaning as well. Um, and it, it was an insult when I was young. Uh, then it got taken up by the academics, didn't it? And then lesbian women revolted against it because they said it, absorbs everybody and the women get lost again, as they always do. Um, it's, it's just coming nowadays, I think. We use it as a useful umbrella term because LGBTQ plus, with all those on, you know, is a bit inconvenient. And I, I use it in that way now, as I think you do, to just embrace us all. But I have to be very careful because there are a lot of my friends, a lot of people of my generation who... who deeply, deeply dislike that word and would not use it. They feel very strongly about it. So look, words, it's really interesting. Um, and I just think we should, a few years ago, can I tell you a little story? You can always edit it out if you want to. A few years ago, some older um, queer women in Brighton, I live near Brighton now, put together a Christmas entertainment uh, to be you know, offered to the local LGBT community in a local queer space. And it was called Dyke the Halls Christmas. Uh, and they thought, well, we'll be inclusive. We'll invite our young friends as well. So they sent a poster for Dyke the Halls up to the university and said to the university gay sock, would you hang this up in your halls of residence and uh, please come to the, to the show? And they were, they received a really very offended and very hostile reply from the students at the university who said, we can't even put this poster on the wall because it infringes our safe space policy. 
um, because it contains the word dyke. And dyke is a word which has been used to, to attack and traumatize some of our members and it will trigger them. And that of course triggered the older lesbians in the community who had also been attacked with that word 40 or 50 years ago and had fought to reclaim it and to identify as it, you know, had been on dyke marches. It had been part of their visibility, part of their coming out. So everybody was offended. Um, everybody was upset and the thing has gone down as a nasty, nasty event in local history. So what am I saying? What I'm saying is have a little bit of intellectual curiosity about the language you speak and have a little bit of kindness because actually we are all on the same side. Some of us are just older than others and language changes. Yeah, no, I think that's the thing because, you know, queer was one of those words where I have. I heard it a lot when I was younger as mm. a word that mm. had a kind of weight and aggression mm. behind it. And I think almost for me and for a lot of other people nowadays, that's become the reason for reclaiming. And I think that's the thing. It goes through those cycles. That reclamation. That's right. It's, but it goes in cycles, you see. And something that you work hard to reclaim in one generation might get rejected again. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's always about, you know, not the word itself, but how it's used. And I think, mm. you know, that that's going to be contextualized by its common usage in that particular era like we've discussed and and I, think and I think the other thing about language and marginalized communities is that there's a very great difference between what we call ourselves and each other within our community and what the outside world calls us um, and how something that is used as an offense by, you know, offensive word by an outsider can be used in a quite jokey way and quite acceptably by an insider. So there's all that going on as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think it'd be interesting to kind of return to, you know, your, your, your days where you were at Birmingham and then obviously moved down to Sussex for your, for your PhD. Um, how would you kind of say that the overall kind of like atmosphere in terms of the aspects that you were involved in had changed in terms of how, you know, especially in a, a subject like uh, gender studies, like how queer people were kind of, you know, addressed and, you know, referred and talked about, because um, you, you described earlier Birmingham as quite a straight university in terms of the the content and the format and, and, and stuff like that. So how would you feel that that's changed in terms of, do you think it's because the same attitude still exists or is it a different reason behind why there's still that sort of marginalization and sort of almost taboo about it? Well, I, I think mm, I haven't been very closely associated with academia for seven or eight years now. So I'm not in touch with how people speak and think. I think it varies hugely from one place to another. Um, and because I, you know, I recently was at the University of Sussex and because I live in Brighton, I realise that I've got a very skewed view of what the rest of the world is like now. Previous to that, as I think I mentioned, I lived in a very remote part of, of rural West Midlands on Welsh border, and it was very different there, very different there. Um, so I don't, I don't quite know how people are thinking about things at the moment, but it seems to me in society at large that there's been an extraordinary, actually quite extraordinary shift in the last 10 or 15 years and that quite ordinary people, you know, acknowledge and support the queer members of their families, for instance, in a way that actually was unimaginable to my generation still pitching ourselves yeah it's happened very quickly yeah and I think I think that's why you know plan this society was set up because mm. you know there is a general kind of discourse of it just being a, a more widely discussed subject and something that you know is just embraced as a an everyday part of the sort mm. of everyday life of a university student but it's more kind of reached that sort of dull area of just kind of acceptance without acknowledging the issues that still persist. So having, ah, yes. you know, societies like this where those can be addressed and, you know, there is an established formal community of 
people who have similar stories or, you know, just being able to find people like themselves, people that they can feel comfortable around. Well, I think there, yes, there are ironies there, aren't there? I mean, you, you, two things. That, that's a really interesting thing you said. Um, first of all, yes, there is a natural, um, there's a natural uh, arc, isn't there, of being not accepted. And then that state of apparent acceptance, um, overt acceptance, social normativeness, which actually hides quite a lot still of prejudice and ignorance, but it's submerged. So that, as you say, we all go about saying, oh, it's perfectly normal to be, to be queer, but it doesn't then progress to a better knowledge um, or a better understanding of the issues that queer people still face. And I think people of colour have known this story for a long time. You know, um, oh, no, we're not, I'm not racist, but, yeah, um, and all, you know, nobody's a racist now. Oh, are they not? Um, and I, you, you've only got to talk to a person of colour to, to hear exactly those same, those same things. So, yes, it's, a diff it's good to go on talking about issues, and I'm glad you've formed your association because I think there's a lot of important work to do. But the other thing that I thought when you said that was the irony that when we were a hidden community and, a and an oppressed and frightened community, we formed very strong and supportive and lovely networks and communities. They were hidden networks and hidden communities. But, and there were spaces where we went and they, they may be hidden spaces, but they were important to us and there were venues um, and there were groups. Mm. And I think now for a lot of younger queer people, those things are not available as easily as they were because we don't need to hide in a cellar, um, you know, and have a gay club anymore. We, our, our gay clubs and bars in the gay villages of the big cities have got great big plate glass fronts. You can look in and see the queers uh, and nobody minds. But what that means is, as you say, that you might not find it very easy to find people like yourself because there are no special places you can go where they are. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's the thing um, you've talked about sort of before in, in work you've done, like that sort of um, I think you described it as a double whammy of kind of sexism and homophobia and, you know, particularly for queer women and, and lesbians and bisexual women and, you know, everyone that kind of has that um, weird sense of, you know, intersectionality is something that is very prominent and embraced, but it's predominantly ignoring this connection between, you know, sexism and homophobia. And I, I guess that's something that you've certainly had experience with. Um, and something that, you know, I can still observe now. And yes. that kind of, you know, it's become, you know, a, a sort of weird transition from the experiences I'm sure you've had to this kind of um, sustained, I, I guess it's almost a sexualization of queer women. And almost the, the idea that, you know, if someone's a lesbian, they haven't been with the right man. And, you know, things like that that still exist. Um, and why do you think that, that those kind of issues are things that still haven't been properly addressed yet? Well, I think that kind of sexism, that kind of sexualization of women is so deeply ingrained in our culture um, that it's, it's not really surprising. When you look at um, pornography, which now is so much more widely available and so much more widely used by all kinds of people of all ages, and you see that the pornography industry is still dominated by the male gaze uh, and the lesbian sex has been a trope um, in, in male-oriented porn for decades, probably centuries actually, because I can think of some 18th century examples. Um, it's very difficult. It's very difficult that to... Um, to root out or even to name because it's so normalized. The idea that women's first duty is to make their bodies available for men. Um, and it threatens, it threatens the status quo, it threatens masculinity. 
that to, to consider that a woman might not only be able to live her life without a man. I, I think we've got past the stage now. We, we have got to the stage where a woman can be seen to live her life independently, to make her own money, to have her own career. Because when I was a child, even that was still in question. Um, but the idea that she might become, that she might not need a man for her sexual life is still, I think, threatening. Um, the idea that she might not want or need that, that she might be happy without it, mm. I think that's very disturbing. Um, even now, really, sadly. Yeah. And do you think your kind of work in sort of history and looking at, you know, queer history, like you was you stating that example from sort of 18th, 19th century, mm. um, do you think that's kind of given you a sort of new perspective of realising just how kind of institutionalised this has always been and, and therefore how how difficult it is to change? Is that something that's kind of shaped? Yes, I, I, I wouldn't want to be depressing um, because I think this also is part of the of the curve of your own life. When you're young, you have to believe that you can change the world. Otherwise, I think you could hardly go on. And, and certainly, I mean, I was a teacher all my working life and you have to be a natural born optimist to be a teacher, I have to say. You have to believe that everything's going to be all right in the end and that we can, we can be good. Um, but as you get older, you do realise that at least you are not ever going to change the world. Um, and the things that you thought were going to be different are still the same. That, look, there have been huge improvements in this country, in this part of the world, um, in the West, over the course of my lifetime. Uh, you know, we've got a lot, of, a lot of lovely legislation now protecting both women and gay people, but it's still there. It's still right. there. It's like racism. It's deep, deep, deep. Mm. Um, and all you can do is go on fighting, really. But yeah. to understand it and acknowledge it and to understand the structures of it. I mean, one of the things that I'm very aware of now, which won't have worried you very much yet, is that there is that intersectionality of oppression not only um, intertwines sex, gender, um, sexual orientation, but also ageism is in there. You know, uh, attitudes to old women are different from attitudes to old men. And different attitudes to old gay men are very different from attitudes. Well, nobody knows there are old gay women. Um, some sort of assumption, as, as Monica once said, that we've either died of our wickedness um, or somehow been airbrushed out of existence. But, uh, but that, I mean, that, that's true of old women generally, isn't it? Perhaps then we could sort of end on kind of a sort of whistle-stop tour of kind of the sort of era of progression that you have kind of been able to experience. I mean, obviously starting as someone who you found your long-term partner at university originally. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. So sort of having that and then, you know, going through a large part of your life where it's not allowed to be a large part of your life. Um and sort of being able to now have that perspective. I mean, especially, you know, as a, as a school teacher for, for many, many years, you know, I still in retrospect can look back and see, you know, the remnants of legislation like section 28 and how that shaped, you know, teaching for me. And I can only imagine kind of what it was like in sort of educational spaces, because I think that's something that's only really kind of getting sort of proper attention now is that, you know, schools are not just an educative institution. They are also one for welfare. Mm. And, you know, were there, were there experiences, were there instances that you kind of witnessed, you know, as a teacher or as a student where it, it sort of shapes how you now view things? Were there instances of, you know, were you able to identify other queer people and want to kind of make that connection and make that bond and couldn't were there instances where you know perhaps there was a student that you kind of saw was struggling but never kind of felt the ability to kind of connect with them there were many there were many but yes I mean I I, I suppose if I think about it just in terms of my professional life it does cover that whole span of history 
I started work in 1967 as a, a school teacher. And I can look back now and I can see that there were at least two other uh, gay women on the staff. We would never have dreamt of coming out to each other or even trying to make that contact. It just, it just wasn't a thing. And I was the junior. I mean, I, you know, it was not for me to do it. But, um, and I think I, I'm trying to remember if I, yes, I can remember one pupil from my very first class who I would, I'd like to know, but I think would have definitely would have grown up gay. Uh, and no, you couldn't do anything for them. Um, as I went on, we got to the stage where I suppose, yes, I think I gay, gay and lesbian teachers came out to each other but you wouldn't necessarily have been out to the rest of the staff room and you certainly wouldn't have been out, out to your pupils and teachers, uh, pupils and parents, and you would have hidden that very, very much. And I have to say, I don't think that I would have got promotion had I been out. Uh, even my last job, which, well, no, my, my last job but one, which was um, as head of a comprehensive school, uh, I became very aware as I got to know my chair of governors that I would never have been appointed to that post had he known that I was a feminist and an atheist, let alone a lesbian. Um, so it was, yeah, the pressures were very great. But I think as the world changed around us and as particularly Section 28 came in, God, I was angry with Section 28 because it tied our hands. Um, it made it even more difficult to help those obvious little souls that you could see, you know, needed an arm around the shoulder. And I be remember becoming very bitter about the fact that they needed, they, kids need positive role models. They needed to see that there were people like them who had led happy and productive lives and it would be all right. You know, and, and the way people go around now saying it gets better, or oh, it would have been so lovely to be able to say that to those kids then. Um, so, yes, that was all very difficult. And eventually I became, I, I had tremendous guilt about it. Mm. I, I beat myself up hugely at one point around, I suppose, in the 80s and 90s. I was saying, you know, if you were only brave for Jane, um, you know, you could have been doing something for these kids. But, of course, I wasn't because by that stage, as I say, I was a head teacher and it would have been very difficult. How do you do it? You yeah. go to the bathroom in the morning and say, now everybody, I've got an announcement to make. Very difficult. Mm. So I, um, you know, you crept out over the years, you crept out, you came out to some people, you came out to others, um, never came out to the parent body as a whole, but uh, came out to one or two choice members. Yeah. I think people knew possibly, don't know, used to say to my friends, I, uh, if I haven't come out properly by the time I retire, I will come out at my retirement party. And that was what I did. Oh. Yeah, it's it, it's such a strange thing to talk about, you know, that idea of, you know, weighing up your career versus, you know, your personal life and your, your sort of happiness in that sense. Um, and I guess what I would ask next is kind of what do you think would have changed? Say you were back at head teacher of that comprehensive school today. What do you wish you could have done in that moment? And why do you think that what you could have done and what you can do now is important to those kids that either don't know or do know and are too scared to say anything? Well, it's very important and I think it's very different. Perhaps there's one other story I ought to tell you. After I had retired and come to live in Brighton, I went one time, which year was it? I can't remember. And I went to watch the Pride Parade, as you do. The Pride, Brighton Pride is huge, as I expect you know, and the parade is very fine. And I was stood on the pavement there on a hot day and I was enjoying myself and we were all having a good time and, and the various floats went by. And suddenly I was aware that one of the double-decker buses, open-top bus it was, was the National Union of Teachers float. And I thought, wow. Now, wow, they're, look at them, bless their hearts. There they all are on the bus saying we're teachers and we're queer. 
And then I looked and I saw that they were not only teachers, but they had their queer students with them on the bus. And I cried. Yeah, that's such a beautiful moment. But after I cried, I got very angry. Mm. And I thought, all that crap we put up with all those years, never again. Yeah. No, I, I, th I think that's kind of come back to that common theme we've sort of talked about of kind of perspective and, mm. you know, that sort of in, in the moment, you know, obviously you've had to balance that sort of resentment of, you know, wishing that things could have been different. And, you know, now we find ourselves in a place where I feel like there is a certain sort of degree of human nature that always craves that certain sort of maybe not as passionate as resentment, but kind of longing for finding those challenges and finding problems and we all we all want approval from other yeah. people and um, the first one we want is to have the approval of our parents and it doesn't matter what generation you are it's never going to be that easy to come out to your mum and dad and i don't think it's probably easier now to just in that moment to do that uh, it's more likely, I hope, that your mum and dad will understand and, and not be hostile. But you never know until it happens. And it's, it's not just about what might happen. It's about whether you are the person your mum and dad wanted you to be. Hmm. So it's always a challenge. It's always yeah. a challenge. No, fabulous. So before we wrap up, I just wanted to kind of ask you, um, I ask every guest this, what is the biggest piece of advice that you would give to anyone at university, at school, perhaps older than myself, perhaps your age, um, that, you know, struggles with themselves in terms of their identity? What would you say is the importance of, you know, putting that effort in and putting that work in to, you know, persevere and be happy within your identity? I think I would urge people, but it's very hard. It's very hard, particularly when you're young, because biologically, you know, you are, um, you have two things going on when you're very young. One is that you are driven by sex. Um, and the other is that you are driven by the need to be like other people. Uh, and if those two things are at war, it is, it's always going to be a struggle. I think what I would say to people is don't let other people push you into being anything that you don't want to be. You talk about your identity, but I think you go on working out your identity all your life. It changes sometimes quite a lot. Uh, and finding out who you are and understanding the processes that make you who you are is, is a life work, actually. It, it's not going to be suddenly a light bulb moment at 24 or something. So I think just be brave and believe in yourself and what feels right for you and don't let other people push you into a mould that's going to distort you. Yeah, brilliant. Um, I think that's all we've got time for today. So I just want to thank you once again, Jane, for taking the time to come and speak to me today. Your insights and experiences have been so, so interesting to listen to for myself, and I'm sure everyone else listening will agree. If you would like to check out any of Jane's work, Now You See Me is available online and in all good bookstores, as are the works of Jay Tavener as well. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Goodbye.
And I just think we should... A few years ago, can I tell you a little story? 